Welcome to CISO's Insiders Podcast, powered by GRC Consulting. In this podcast, we'll be interviewing leading CISOs and security leaders in the industry for light, eye-level conversations. Here, they share advice and tips, talk about their biggest accomplishments and failures, favorite drinks, key influencers, and much more. We encourage you to walk away with at least one insight that will help you better yourself or your business. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more content, please check us out on social media. Welcome, everybody. Today, I'm speaking with Greg Edwards. Uh, today, we actually have a special edition of this podcast. We'll be focusing our uh, talk today about uh, the topic of ransomware. And Greg, being a, a subject matter expert in this realm, uh, was uh, kind enough to uh, carve out a bit of his time and, and join me in this podcast today. Welcome aboard, Thank- Greg. Thanks for having me, Ben. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to have you here. Um, you know, I always like to start off with a couple of icebreaker questions, and um, and but but you know, I'm 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 digressing. Um, I'm running too fast. Uh, can you jump in, introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm uh, Greg Edwards, the CEO and founder of CryptoStopper. Uh, CryptoStopper is a tool to stop actively running ransomware attacks that have gotten past all the other defenses. Got it. Thank you. And um, and how long have you been, uh, I mean, how long since you founded a company? Yeah, so um, CryptoStopper originally was founded in 2016 as an actual MSSP. Uh, and then we developed CryptoStopper as a product within that MSSP because Tool, other tools weren't stopping ransomware uh, and, and launched it as its own product in 2019. Uh, but I've been in the technology and cybersecurity industry since 1998. Okay, got it. Yeah, I mean, we're almost, uh, we almost have the same, uh, you know, history in terms of uh, timeline that we're in, in the industry. I'm, I'm, I think I'm in the industry since 2000. Yeah, it just makes us old. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, when I started off, I had um, much more hair, that's for sure. <laughs> and I have the pictures to prove it. Uh, but a- a- anyhow, uh, I always like to start off with uh, you know, a couple of icebreaker questions just to give the audience a chance to get to know you better. Uh, do you mind sharing what's your favorite drink and what's your marital, marital status? Yep. So I am married, have been married for almost 20 years. And my favorite drink, um, if we're talking alcoholic, would uh, definitely be beer, actually. I'm a fan. I'm a, we have lots of microbrews here in my area. And so um, would be a, a, uh, an IPA would be my favorite drink. Okay. Okay. Nice. Um, yeah, we just, um, I just, I'm, we just came back from Napa and we, we had a lot of wine tastings there and also beer tasting. So we went to a microbrewery as well, uh, which was very interesting. The only problem was that they served, they served 13 types of beers, which was too much, I feel, <laughs> to taste and intake. But uh, yeah, thank you for sharing. Yeah. Yeah, and the, yeah, the problem with the uh, the beer today is that you don't know if you're getting a four percent alcohol beer or an eleven percent alcohol beer. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. For us, that I mean, that was like pretty much in the middle, anywhere from six to eight, I would say. Yeah, but yeah, yeah I mean, it was decent. Um, so you know, let's dive right in. Um, I mean, 
it seems to me that are like the number of attacks, uh, and that includes ransomware attacks, obviously, just growing so much in the past few years. Do you have any thoughts around why, why is the reason for that? Yeah, money. Um, that is the, the complete, in my opinion, the complete driver behind why we have so many attacks happening today, and then uh, specifically why we have so many ransomware attacks happening. And if you look at historically, the attacks that we had prior to 20, 2012, I'll put a, a, a date in, in the sand uh, at 2012, because that's when Bitcoin became readily available. Um, if you look at attacks prior to 2012, most of them were uh, either state actors or corporate actors with corporate espionage or state espionage. If you look post-2012, after cryptocurrency became available, uh, then you see many more organized crime and attackers that are in it for the money. And, and really, when you look at how long it takes any given industry to ramp up, we're now at about 10 years since that became available. And now these attackers are becoming experts in what they're doing and really have built their business model. And that's how they view it is as a business model. Uh, and they're, they're perfecting their craft. Yeah. So, I mean, money is always a great incentive. And I, I guess uh, the fact that Bitcoin is uh, not as traceable, uh, I mean, that doesn't make sense. Um, but I mean, do you think these are the, the predominant reasons for that? Or is it also, do you also see or think about other reasons, whether like, you know, state actors or, you know, any, anything else at all? Yeah, I mean, I think the state actors from, I mean, if you look back to 2016 and the attacks um, on on our campaigns that started back then and then have continued since, I mean, those certainly are state actors. And, and I feel, again, the reasoning behind all of that um, is the expertise level that these, whether it be state actors or individual actors um, or organized criminal actors. Um, it's just that the level of expertise that they have now is massively increased and has massively increased over the last 10 years. I mean, if you look back as far as 20 years ago and you look at some of the first big hacking incidents, those really were perpetrated by the U.S. Uh, and then all of the other state actors followed suit from from there and now it's a really retaliatory kind yeah. of environment between governments and then you know so you set that aside and look at the non-government side and non-state actors i think that that side of it is, is much more financially driven yeah and um you know i actually i wanted to ask you a specific question about that but uh, I'll, I'll i'll wait i'll wait let's let's uh let's uh move this uh at a slower pace because i did want to i'll circle back to this uh topic about you know state actors versus private companies going forward in, in this podcast yep. um so you know but we, we've seen so many big attacks in the last decade or so you know anything that you know even more than a, a decade ago like the 7-eleven heartland at tj maxx equifax nih in the uk um i feel yeah, there was like could... 
Yeah, you could go on. You could go yeah. on. Yeah, I could go on. I mean, I, I yeah. can't recall. I, I don't remember all of them, obviously. But uh, <laughs> right. do you feel there is like an underlying theme here in play? Uh, like, for example, how does Equifax, you know, differs from what are solar winds, for example, or a, a, any any specifics that you want to share? Yeah. Well, I mean. The underlying, I mean, I, I think ultimately the underlying reasons are lack of cybersecurity protocols put in place by uh, by these entities, whether it be government entities or um, business entities. It's it, because companies can protect themselves. Uh, it isn't a matter, you know, I, that has changed, has certainly changed. So 10 years ago, the tools didn't exist that companies could protect themselves like they can today. The problem that I see today is now the lack of professionals on, on our side to be able to implement all of these tools and the, the processes and the compliance around making sure that those tools are implemented properly. So I think it's a lack of, lack of cybersecurity, lack of compliance, that has gotten us where we are currently. Now we the tools are available and people can protect themselves, but now there aren't enough professionals to go implement it. And I, I think that the at the executive level and at the board level, um, CEO level, like they're finally, I mean, certainly within the Fortune 500, they're finally waking up to the fact that this all has to be done. They're allocating the budgets to do it. That's migrating down to smaller and smaller companies. Um, you look just in the last year, the cyber liability applications and the requirements to get cyber liability now are coming in line with items that actually make companies secure. And the reason that that's happening is because the the insurance carriers have had to pay out so much that now they're saying, oh, wait, we should actually take this seriously and not just issue cyber liability insurance to anyone. And so actually putting requirements around. So it's, it's all a matter of, we didn't have the proper tools 10 years ago. We now have the proper tools, but now we don't have enough professionals to implement all those tools. And it, it's, a, it's a cascading effect. Yeah, no, and I agree with you on that. It's just that I feel that in some cases, the motivation for uh, carrying out an attack for on like a financial institution is probably different than carrying an attack on uh, like a vendor that, you know, is a, an integral part of the supply chain of a major, you know, U.S. organization or whatever, even a federal organization. Yeah, uh, yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Okay. Um, any specific thoughts about uh, hacking powerhouses out there like Russia, China, Iran, North Korea? Yeah, I mean, I, I also think you have to include the U.S. and Israel in, in those groups. Um, we're, That's we're, right. We're, <laughs> we're uh, at least not attacking ourselves. Um, so, I mean, specific thoughts around them are, I mean, they're those entities are some of the best hackers and are the best hackers in the world. I mean, the, the ability for an individual corporation to protect themselves from a state actor is much more difficult than protecting yourself from your typical cyber hacker. And really what I advise our clients is that you're not, I mean, most, if, if you're not, 
if you're not a international corporation that's in in an industry that the intellectual property would want to be stolen um you're fairly safe i mean there are lots of intellectual property theft uh, especially from china uh, on smaller and smaller companies but i mean what i feel that that comp consumer companies within the U.S. need to think about protecting themselves from are the cyber attackers and not necessarily the state attackers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but still, I mean, and, and this brings me to my, you know, one of my uh, follow-up questions here. So there is for sure an asymmetry, you know, between like, you know, if a private organization is being attacked or hacked by a state actor, obviously, I mean, this is not a fair play. It's not a fair game, right? So, Absolutely. So, like, what would your, uh, I mean, do you have any, do you think there's anything a private company, even a large company, I mean, even a, a corporate can, can actually do against a state actor? Well, I mean, so the, the identification of the threat. So having, again, having the right tools, but then also having the right professionals to be able to identify that. Um, but when you look at, I mean, so if you look back at the solar winds attack or the, um, or the Kaseya attack, I mean, there's very little that an individual company or an individual entity could have done to protect themselves because it's a known good tool that they're already using and implemented. And when that comes through and that known good tool is the attack vector, it is really difficult to protect against that. I mean, that, that doesn't mean though that these companies and business and um, federal entities should stick their head in the sand and say, oh, we're not gonna do anything then. If we can't protect ourselves against a state actor, then that, that doesn't mean and doesn't translate to we should do nothing. Yeah, and I know I noticed you just mentioned Kaseya. Um, any chance we could uh, maybe do a deep dive and discuss that uh, attack? I believe that was the uh, last 4th of July. Yeah, yeah. So that that attack was carried out um, by the Our Evil group out of, out of Russia uh, and happened on the weekend right before July 4th and specifically happened at that time because they knew, I mean, it was a time bomb attack where they knew that people would be going on on the long long holiday and so that was what's considered a supply chain attack where the attack vector actually is within the code of the software that's already in the system and already known good and so that came through as an update through the Kaseya BMS system which is a, a virtual management system that managed service providers and corporations use to manage all of their assets. So when you've got the attack coming within that tool set and then perpetrating a ransomware attack, it, there's very little that the actual companies, whether it be the managed service providers or the end consumers that were hit, I mean, there's very little that they could do to protect themselves against that. I mean, Crypto Stopper would have would have stopped it in that case because it is an actual file level uh, tool to recognize. Then in, in this case, ransomware running. Um, but I mean, they also had full admin rights into the system. So 
I mean, they could have certainly done other damage beyond ransomware if that, you know, if, if they had decided to. Yeah. And do you have any, do you know of any statistics about the aftermath of, of that attack? Like Yeah. So, yeah. So 1,500 end businesses that were actually hit um, fully encrypted their systems and took them took them down. Um, there were 59, uh, 59 managed service providers that their systems were hit. And then that translated to 1500 businesses being hit. Mm -hmm. And that was predominantly here in the US, correct? Um, it was predominantly here in the US, but it was also in Europe. Interesting. Uh, and in your and, opinion, I'm oh, sorry, please. Go well, ahead. well, and I should say, uh, so Kaseya does have, they have 37,000 customers. So the fact that they were able to stop it as quickly as they were was good. I mean, that was a positive um, that it, it only hit 59 of their customers, but it's still, I mean, still a massive impact. And I, I do think that they handled it as well as they could have. I don't know necessarily their protections in place prior that, you know, if that I'm assuming that that could have been better. Um, I don't know, but you would also assume that SolarWinds, SolarWinds had a very similar attack. You would assume that they had the proper protections in place to be able to protect yeah. themselves. Yeah, so you're saying, you know, they did a decent job. Do you think they could have done better? And if so, how? Um, so, I mean, that they, they could have, I mean, they, they were fairly transparent in their communication and they were, um, they were, they put out messaging right away. Um, I think that, you know, that you can always pick that apart and there, there could have been things in retrospect that they could have done better, but I think they did a very good job of handling the communication. They shut their systems down uh, and shut their systems down for two weeks, uh, which I felt like that was, you know, I, I would have thought they would have been able to react more quickly and have those systems back up faster if they had the proper protocols in place ahead of time. But again, I, I'm not privy to all of the details, um, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think on the whole, they handled it as well as they could have, given the circumstances. Looks like there probably were things that, had they done better pre-attack, they could have handled it better post-attack. Got it. And, you know, let's discuss uh, a bit about your, um, your solution, Creepa Stopper. Like, um, I mean, maybe you could, you know, introduce it, talk a bit about it, maybe try to tie it back to, you know, similar attacks and well, we can talk discuss how these would have potentially, you know, been avoided or mitigated. Yeah, so with CryptoStopper, what we do is, is deploy bait files. Uh, so we consider those honeypot files or bait files that we deploy throughout a network and then really are doing file integrity monitoring on top of that to detect that ransomware attack that's actively running. And then we're identifying the process that's running the attack and or depending on if it's running from a network share, um, identifying the device that's running the attack and then isolating that and cutting it off from the rest of the network and or killing the process if the individual process is identified. And what that 
what that really does is it's it's post so it's a, a post attack detection and and response system that's automated so we're watching for that action of of ransomware running so it's gotten past all of the other defenses now ransomware is actively running and we detect that and stop it in less than a second so that it's minimizing the damage and there's only a few files that maybe hit as opposed to millions of files being hit and, and destroying all of the data in the system. Mm -hmm. So that's like the last line of defense, basically. It, yeah, exactly. So so previously, I owned an offsite backup and disaster recovery company, uh, and our engineers were responding to ransomware attacks more than any kind of natural disasters or hardware failures. Um, didn't to put that into perspective, during Hurricane Sandy, we did nine simultaneous recoveries for companies on the East Coast. Uh, there was one particular weekend where we did 14 simultaneous recoveries because of ransomware attacks uh, in uh, one ransomware mm. variant. So we were seeing those ransomware attacks happening and becoming much more prevalent as a disaster recovery situation, which is still, I mean, that's devastating to a company, even when they have a good backup and recovery solution to, because they're completely down, it takes their IT, IT team quite a while, when I say quite a while, you know, hours to determine what happened and decide, okay, now we need to go into recovery. And you're usually, um, best case scenario, you're 24 hours into it to bring the system up. And most of the time it's, you know, a couple of weeks to really get the system back up and going. And that's when they have a good recovery system. Uh, so it, it just became obvious to, to us that there had to be a better solution than just relying on backup as that last line of defense. And so CryptoStopper, rather than going to the backup, CryptoStopper is that last line of defense. Mm -hmm. Okay. And looking at the bigger picture here, what do you feel like... Um other controls and and procedures and processes and organizations should put in place any anywhere anything from breach uh, you know incident response to compliance so i mean all of that <laughs> i'm i'm a huge proponent of the defense in depth and having um incident response and the xdr solutions that are now out there. Um, there are some incredibly great tools available in the uh, XDR space, and and just in the the you know beyond just logging, but correlating all of the event traffic, and and rather than move, you know so moving on beyond just sim, uh, and taking that information and having actionable events based on that information that's automated as opposed to having individuals and having SOC teams manually taking, you know, I, I think you need a combination of both. You need an automated response and a SOC team. So it's, I mean, it's, it's a lot and it's a lot for, especially as you get smaller and smaller companies that maybe have an IT team of a few people, they're not going to have the expertise and so you really need vendors out there that can provide those automated response and manual SOC services to the companies that are 
even you know a thousand and less employee size companies need those kind of vendors and then larger corporations need need the vendor support to be able to implement those solutions in-house yeah and i think you touched on my next question but uh so what would be the the ideal uh, customer to be to be using your uh, you know plat- your solution yeah so so we focus on managed service providers and mssps and so those are our target clients to and then we only sell through that channel of managed service providers and managed security service providers and then so ultimately the end user of our tools are in the smb and mid-market space so a thousand thousand and less mm-hmm. endpoints we haven't we haven't rolled out an enterprise uh enterprise system yet and intend to in 2022 um, but are focused on the smb and mid-market space through managed service providers got it let me ask you a dumb question is it a bulletproof solution um i wouldn't say anything is a bulletproof solution um you know anytime someone asks me that um i say you know i i i know that our solution absolutely works and stops ransomware is there a way that an attack vector could come that would get around it um i potentially like i i wouldn't ever say that anything is bulletproof Okay. And I think, I think as the CEO of any cybersecurity company, um, they would be naive to say that they've, they've got a bulletproof system. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so in light of the recent attacks on the, the US DOD supply chain, in your opinion, what should the US government uh, do better next time around? <laughs> that's a big question <laughs> so you know I, these supply chain attacks the the thing that really uh, that all companies need are those automated detection and response solutions so you know just like crypto stopper is a an automated ransomware detection and response system the all of the other detection and response systems systems that exist now I mentioned the XDR so you've got the network detection and response tools that are watching the network for anomalous behavior and then cutting off um, cutting off devices I mean th- that's really where we need to go uh, to be able to actually stop these kind of supply chain attacks that are happening uh, and until you know it's a, it's a matter of implementing and requiring those you that that level of defense and depth that's ultimately going to get us there I mean it's going to be a cat and mouse game has been a cat and mouse game forever um, but is going to continue to ratchet up over the coming years yeah um, and um, and I know we've spoken a bit about you know the asymmetry between the uh, state actors and private companies um, I think I've mentioned in our uh, preliminary call that uh, the US government uh, as far as I know for the first time have um, you know designated uh, a private company out of Israel um, as um, uh, I'm not sure what's the, what's the what the term is yeah, so, yeah they put uh, yeah they put, put it on like one of the it's not a black list yeah a restricted list yeah yeah 
um, <clears throat> I'm referring to the NSO case. Uh, do you have any specific thoughts on that? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think it was a good move on the U.S. government side. So this tool, the tool we're talking about is Pegasus, Pegasus. Uh, that allowed NSO to sell that Pegasus tool to government entities uh, throughout the world. And there were, I believe, 50,000 identified phone numbers that Pegasus was installed on. So if you look at the, you know, the Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, I, I don't know how his to name pronounce properly. it. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> um, Jamal Khashoggi. His, his death, I feel, uh, and this is my opinion, but I feel was directly related to the fact that Pegasus was on his system and likely on his girlfriend's phone. Uh, and so to give some background on that, Pegasus allowed, essentially allowed these government entities that bought it from NSO to be able to hack the iPhones uh, and Android devices of almost anyone. So essentially could have just been a link. Uh, so email or a, a link sent through text message that then the person clicked on and essentially completely took over the phone, would give all of the keystrokes, um, even voice, video, location, you know, any, essentially everything that your phone can do would feed that information into the Pegasus system to allow these entities to track those individuals. And yeah, I mean, I, so my opinion is I think the U.S. government did the right thing. Um, those like the, the iPhone security holes have been patched at this point. So that, you know, can't happen currently but what do we now not know about right like it's yeah. not it's not the the known threats that we have to worry about i mean pegasus from my understanding had been available at least for a couple of years um and so if that was a zero day attack that was available for two years what's available right now that you and i and the rest of the security community doesn't even know about that's out there and actively happening. And that's really the, the concern. Yeah, were you just looking at your iPhone to see? <laughs> see where <it> was? <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> no, no, not, not really. I mean, I, I mean, I'm with you. I don't really know anything about their technology. I'm not privy to any, any specific information. Uh, I was just, uh, you know, curious from the global perspective because that's, again, as far as I know, the first time it's happening. Uh, yeah, first time um, that I know. A, yeah, yeah on an a, Israeli company, and I think. Right. Yeah, right. there there have been restrictions put on Kaspersky, which was a Russian yeah. company yeah. and Chinese companies. But yeah, as far as Israeli communication, Israeli connections, it's it's the first that I know of that the U.S. has put restrictions on an Israeli company. Yeah, and again, I think was the right thing to do, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, I would have to to agree with you on that. Again, I'm not um, not uh, knowledgeable with uh, their technology. And so, what you said about uh, you know Pegasus being uh, like installed on the iPhone of that um, um, uh, um, reporter Jamal. from from yeah Jamal from uh, Saudi Arabia, I think um, that was yep. killed. Is that a fact or is that like? Um, um, I I mean, I think it's taken as a fact i can't i don't know that i could 
-hmm. you know, I, I don't have the information that would prove that definitively. Um, but I think it's generally considered that that was the case. Uh, Got it. Again, I, I don't have the exact, you know, I, I couldn't connect the dots a hundred percent. Well, I mean, definitely we live in interesting times in that sense. Um, and yeah, you know, I think that's all I've got. Do you have anything specific that you wanted to add to this discussion or any, if not any final notes? Yeah. I mean, I think just the, the final, and I, I think the audience that's listening to this probably is also in line with the defense in depth and multiple layers of security is the right defense along with compliance, uh, following the NIST, uh, NIST standards, the, the ISO 27001 standards and having the compliance around all of that is, is what it's going to take to secure our systems. And then when you talk about the asymmetric problems that we have with state actors, I mean, that adds to the complexity, but it doesn't mean that companies shouldn't do everything that they can to protect themselves. Yeah. And, you know, just on my end, some final notes, I do agree with you. I mean, I think the multi-tiered approach for, uh, you know, defense in depth uh, is very important. And I think what the past years have taught us is that um, attacks can happen to any type of an organization at any, at any size. It's not the right reserved only for the, you know, corporate America type of types of companies. Um, so, so yeah, and, and I do feel that, um, you know, compliance is a part there. Obviously, you need to have products, you need to, you need to have solutions in place to, to allow you with, you know, recovery cap capabilities, with, um, with identif identification of uh, threats and threat agents uh, as well. But uh, definitely, I, I believe personally that you need to start by looking at the big picture and understanding what it is that you have, how you go about protecting what you have and what's missing. And this would allow you to create a strategy, obviously, to you know better protect yeah. yourself and your organization. Absolutely. I mean, companies big and small need to understand what their risk is. And I feel like if I hear one more time, oh, well, we, we shouldn't. We have nothing that anybody would want, <laughs> and I hear that at least weekly. Um, makes me want to scream that people don't. I mean, if you have an internet connection and a bank account, your your and any amount of data, which is every company in the world, then you have important information that you are an attack target. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And uh, as you said, I mean, every company might be a target at some at some point, and it's sometimes it's not only the, um, the value of the digital assets that you have, but it's also the ease of getting getting into your perimeter, whether logically or physically. For sure, yeah, and that's becoming more and more important. Is that are you more secure than your than neighbor the down time. the road? Yeah, exactly, yep. exactly. Yep. Well, I mean, great. I, I'm, I'm very happy that we got, finally, we got a chance to record this podcast. I know we've had some coordination issues here and uh, so happy to have your board. Absolutely. And yeah, hopefully, you know, uh, your answers would uh, provide some value to our listeners. 
and uh, hoping uh, to see you again in the near future. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Yeah, thank you.